Hi, it's Dave. Today we're joined with James Dalma. He is a machine learning expert and he's been a frequent guest on my channel. Hi, James. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great. Good to see you. Yeah, awesome. Um, we have a James Dalma AI playlist and on that playlist, you'll see a bunch of videos that James and I have done on Tesla full self-driving. Um, it's been a fantastic journey learning kind of the ins and outs of full self-driving. And today we wanted to do a dive into um, full self-driving hardware. And the question is, A, does Tesla have an advantage with full self-driving hardware? Um, what do their competitors like hardware look, look like? And what do, what does the future of full self-driving hardware entail? So, um, yeah, James, um, uh, what, what are your thoughts, I guess, to kind of start out this discussion? I think yeah, you had so, an anecdote or something you wanted to share in the beginning. Yeah. The, at the, at the 10,000 foot level, uh, the reason I thought this was an interesting topic, I, I have a background doing this stuff and I was looking at the at this hardware for a while before FSD, before Tesla announced the FSD uh, uh, upgrade hardware, the hardware three that's going into the cars. And, and I thought I've got all this stuff sitting around, somebody might find it interesting. So I'll show you know some of the uh, background work that I did. It also gave me an excuse to catch up on the hardware. I hadn't looked at the competitor hardware in a while. But my anecdote was uh, that I'd been super excited um, uh, when I found out that Tesla was going to be doing an upgrade for their for their platform, and I really got into trying to figure out like what the upgrade was going to be, because like you know I'd seen the neural networks, um, I you know I'd got some neural networks from a hacker friend, and uh, that that came out of the car, and I you know I went through this stuff and I was trying to figure out like what would be the right hardware, and then Tesla published these patents that that had that, and I had already sort of a gone with had this idea that um that they would be doing something similar to um uh, google did this tpu chip uh, of, of their own uh which came out a bit before this and and they wrote they published this interesting paper on it to show how uh you could do the architecture of a simple architecture for uh, a calculating engine that was really optimized for doing neural networks and it would just crush anything else i mean it had it used much less power was very simple and it had just mind-blowing speed like it was you know 20 times 50 times 100 times faster than the competitive solutions that they had and it was pretty simple and i was certain that tesla would do something along these lines and then they published their patents and and uh that was super fun because i could take that i i built a model to try to understand like just what the the architectural parameters would be to optimize the uh the um their engine for the kinds of neural networks that they were doing. So my girlfriend and I we were on a road trip, and when uh, auton autonomy day was happening, so we're driving through Tucson, and I'm listening to you know I we I got it running in the on the phone, and it's sitting in the dashboard, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, as so we're listening to Pete Bannon sing, and she's like, what are you talking about for like two hours? I'm like cheering and, <laughs> and everything as I'm hearing Pete, you know, Pete Bannon and the various people go through the. The thing. So for me, it was like this whole this total victory lap. I felt like because yeah. I actually, so they did everything that I thought they were going to do, and then they ended up being quite a bit more ambitious because my my expectation was actually that they would do the silicon as an accelerator, and like instead of doing a sock, a sock is a system on chip where you you basically do one piece of silicon customized to your solution, and you put everything that's complicated and important on that one piece of silicon. It's the cheapest. It gets you the lowest power. Um, it's, it's the most technically difficult in a lot of ways for the team that makes the part. 
um, there's a much easier way to go, which is you you buy a SOC, um, a system on a chip that has a microprocessor and a GPU and memory controllers and, you know, all the stuff that kind of everybody wants in their system. And then they could have built a separate chip that was an accelerator. And like this is what Google did with their TPO, for instance. Google, who's got plenty of IC capability, they did a very unaggressive design for their TPU. They, it was in 28 nanometer, which is a very conservative a processing node for making ICs. They ran at a relatively low clock speed, and and they didn't need to get very aggressive with it because the the architectural advantages over GPUs or CPUs or the other ways this stuff we're doing were being done are so high that even a relatively conservative design, you don't have to take a lot of risk. It can just be your first try. We'll just crush the the alternatives for for what you can do, and I I sort of expected that Tesla would do that. So when I saw that, no, they they went to the full on the Apple approach, or no, we're going to go with a full custom, you know, a, a good process node. We're going to put everything in there. Uh, that was actually really, uh, I mean, it was exciting to hear. But then after the fact, it was like, oh, yeah, this is Elon, right? Like, there's not going to be a half measure. He's going to want it to be better, cheaper, <laughs> faster. He's going to want everything, the whole the whole shebang. And they made it fit inside this, this really remarkable power envelope. And it's an amazingly clean, straightforward, and really robust design. I was really excited to hear it. That's cool. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm dying to, to learn more about mm-hmm. full self-driving hardware. So one, uh, one anecdote was I was like at Autonomy Day um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the room it was a bunch of institutional investors and Pete Bannon goes up there to explain the full self-driving hardware. This is like in April, 2019. And he does more of a technical presentation, right? Of the whole thing. Yeah. And these guys are not, no one's like a technical in the audience. These, yeah. these guys are investors. And I see everyone, they're just like, like they're like looking at each other. They're saying like, do you understand any of this? Right? <laughs> and like, I think that guy next to me, he's like, do you, do you know what's going on? <laughs> and um, it was it was so funny because um, they went technical, and a guy like you will who's like into it, who understands it, will understand maybe you know the intention and the goal and what they're trying to do. But I think for investors, it went over their head, you know, yeah. and myself included. You know, I'm like I, I don't know, you know, mm. I know the gist of what they're trying to do. You know, they're trying to put everything together, make a, a customized solution exactly for their software needs, right? Um, but mm. all of the technical details were were way over my head too. But yeah, I'm wanting, I'm wanting to know, yeah, can you help us decode this? Can you help us understand, you know, what Tesla's well, well, yeah, hardware I can try. is all about? Yeah, let's so, go for it. So, yeah, so uh, if you have questions about Bannon's presentation, I would be super happy to answer them. It was a, it was oh, a brilliant cool. yeah. presentation. I, I felt like, I was actually like, um, you know, 15 minutes in the presentation, I was like, oh man, this, you know, this is a wrong room or whatever the deals. But I was, I felt like um, the presentation, it wasn't just for the people who were there, right? It's super credible to anybody who knows the tech to listen to this stuff. And I mean, I think Elon said at the end of at the end of Bannon's or maybe most of the way through Bannon's presentation, I was like, you know, this is probably a more technical presentation than 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 most of you were prepared for. And I know it's probably going over a lot of your heads, but we we wanted to make it clear because a lot of people won't believe that Tesla has made the best chip for full self-driving. Like, why would that happen? You know, yeah. it's it's not something that you would expect. And yet it's true. Mm-hmm. And I think 
you know, there's no nobody who knows the tech is going to look at this presentation and is going to doubt that that it's mm -hmm. true. Like yeah. there's no competition for this part. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I, I don't want to overlap with some of the stuff mm -hmm. you have prepared, but maybe I'll just shoot off a couple questions about Pete Bannon's presentation. So I was watching sure. it actually yesterday to kind of get up to speed. Um, some of the things that they're saying is. First, the, one of the most important things was power consumption. They wanted to get it under 100 watts. Um, are they mm -hmm. are they saying basically 100 watts per mile? No, no, it's a hundred. Uh, that's a so a watt oh. is a measure of power. It's not a measure oh. of energy. So energy is like a watt hour or a kilowatt yeah. hour. That's uh -huh. energy. So that's like what it takes to go someplace. So you would say a certain number of kilowatt hours per mile or something if you were trying to measure it in terms of that. Okay. 100 watts is 100 watts it's 100 watt light bulbs worth of continuous power so okay. it'll use 100 watts whether the car is sitting still in traffic or whether it's driving on the freeway right so the the watt you know the watt hours per mile that get used uh for uh by this car it'll depend on how fast you're going because the the fsd it's like it's per uh, okay. unit time the energy uses not not per mile but so a Model 3 uses around uh, 250, 280 watt hours per mile. Mm -hmm. So if you were driving in a, you know, uh, so this is 100 watts. So over the course of an hour, it will take 100 watt hours. So yeah. it would be, so it would, t it, it will use like a quarter of a Model 3, a quarter of a mile of a Model 3's worth of driving energy per hour of usage. So it's quite small compared to the needs of the car. I think... Um, Elon had said later in the presentations, cause he, one of the analysts had a question along these lines yeah. too, about, you know, what the, what the usage was. And he suggested that for, you know, if you have a model three, that's a robo taxi and it's driving around and it's averaging 17 miles an hour in town or something like that. Well, if you're, if your FSD computer is taking a kilowatt, it's making a dent, it's making a real dent in the amount of range that the vehicle has. I mean, it, it doesn't destroy it, but it has an impact, right? It affects the economics of the thing. But 100 watts, that's down in the noise, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about power, you know, this is you got kind of have this scale. 100 watts is okay. 1,000 watts is kind of, uh, yeah, that's kind of painful. We really don't want to go there, right? So mm -hmm. that just kind of on the scale. You could, you could They could try to get below 100 watts, right? But it's not really going to make much difference because it's 100 watts is about in the noise, Right. The pain point starts at 500, 607 watts at a kilowatt. It's painful at five kilowatts, which is like that's the power consumption for some prototype self-driving cars. You know, that's like that's a non-starter because that's going to hit your range way too much. Mm -hmm. OK, so how can we think of what, like, what percent? Let's say I'm driving my Model 3 for an hour. Mm -hmm. um, what percent uh, does the full self-driving computer use, you think, of the energy? So let's say if you if you if you're driving for an hour and you're driving at 17 miles an hour, right? You're gonna go 17 miles over that hour, and the the full self-driving computer is gonna reduce that. You know, you would have gone 17 and a quarter miles, and now you're going 17 miles. It it costs you mm, a quarter okay. mile over the course of an hour. So if yeah. you're driving 60 miles an hour, it's a difference between going 60 uh, miles and going 60 and a quarter mile, right? Mm. Because it's gonna be that quarter of a mile per hour regardless mm -hmm. of how fast the car is going. Okay, that makes sense. So it's pretty negligible, I guess, you know, um, the energy consumption. 
Got it. And you can imagine like if it was 10 times higher than that, it would be like four miles per hour. Yeah. Right. So if you're if you're if you're a robo taxi and you average 15 miles an hour. Right. Well, that four miles is the difference between 15 miles of range and 11 miles of range. Right. Mm-hmm. OK. So um, it has an impact at that point. OK. Got it. Um, he um, Pete Bennett also noticed like uh, noted that, you know, these trillion operations per second, they wanted mm-hmm. to get at least 50. Um Chilean operations per seconds of neural net performance. And then he also said, you know, that their hardware um, was able to process about 2,300 frames per second. I mean, is, are these correlated? Is, is, do you need that much, you know, neural net processing in order to process that many frames per second? And then is the 2,300 frames, is that because of the eight cameras, right? They just matched exactly what the eight cameras were, was, were, was outputting? Yeah. This is a little misleading, the whole frames per second. And um, if you've got two computers and you want to compare them, mm-hmm. you can get these sort of artificial synthetic benchmark, synthetic uh, numbers, kind of like trillions of operations per second. But the, but uh, you can have a very high tops number and not be able to use most of those depending on the problem that you're trying to solve, right? If the neural network is a really good fit for your hardware, you might get 90% of that number. And I think that is about what Tesla probably gets. You know, they have 145 tops more or less that the that the FSD is rated. That's both chips, both of them running, right? So it's, it's a 36.8 for each of the two NPUs in one of the FSD chips. And of course there's two of those. So the whole box together ends up being 144. Uh, and when they run a neural network, they can run a neural network and spread it across all these chips. So they can use all 144 tops. But now say you had a different architecture, like it can also, and like, this is one of the reasons they're talking about this is because comparing a GPU, which is not optimized for neural networks to Tesla's FSD chip, which is optimized for neural networks, you get this kind of strange thing, which is, you know, you get a certain number of tops for the GPU and you get a certain number of tops for their for the FSD chip. And of course, you know, say for instance, they're both 144. For instance, you can say, well, the GPU will be about as fast. Actually, the thing is, the GPU ends up not being nearly as fast because GPUs aren't as good at running neural networks. They have a hard time using all 144 of their tops. In fact, so Tesla's system is gonna be, the FSD chip is gonna run at about 95% of the full tops rating for the kinds of networks that Tesla runs. Now, if you were running a different kind of neural network, you would get different numbers. Now, Tesla designed this system specifically for the kinds of neural networks they want to run, and they get very high efficiency. But I went back and I did a calculation on the the GP106, uh, which is the GPU that they had in the other. That's the GPU they have in this one I was showing you earlier. This this is one of the FSD machines, uh, FSD computers. Uh, sorry, this is not an FSD. This is an AP2 computer. The FSD is exactly the same size as this. Um, and this this one has a GP106, which is an NVIDIA GPU, which was the accelerator they were using in hardware 2 and hardware 2.5 to do that. So, so even with the code optimized to run on the GP106, which like the AP2, the neural networks were optimized to run on this box, they could only achieve 45% of the maximum rating. So this is rated at, uh, for, let's see, is it 612? It's about six tops, but they were only able to get 40% of that. 
because the GPU isn't made for processing neural networks. You can get more of those tops on some things. Like if Tesla's neural networks were a lot smaller, they would be able to get a lot more tops. But the and I'm going to go through the architectural differences and why the GPUs end up not being quite as good. But so they want uh, Tesla wants to have a metric that kind of means something to people where they can say, this is what we got on the GPU and this is what we get on our computer. And so what they decided to go with was they took one of their AP1 networks, the main camera network, sorry, AP2 networks that they ran on the GPU and that was already optimized for running on the GPU. And they ran it as fast as they could to get a measure of how fast the GPU was. And they got 110 frames per second. And they took that exact same network and they just put it on their hardware and they got 2,300 uh, frames per second. So that's a very simple way of comparing the relative speed of these two platforms. You know, and this is where they get, it's 21, 21 times faster. Now that network is not the network they run in FSD. And 2,300 frames per second is not very useful, right? You know, having a frame every two milliseconds. It, but as, as Pete Bannon explained, one, another one of the finance people asked him, like, what does that, you know, what, is this, what does TOPS mean? He described it as it's a currency that you can spend to, uh, in various kinds of ways. You can either run more neural networks, you can run bigger neural networks, or you can run at higher frame rate. You can trade these things off. But basically, it's a more powerful computer and it allows you to solve harder problems faster. That's that's the net net out of it. Now, for the most part, what Tesla does with this is they run much bigger neural networks. I mean, that's the main thing they want to be able to do. They wanted much more capable neural networks for FSD, and that meant they needed to be bigger than what they could do on the GPU. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, generally. Um, what, Pete Bannon, I guess Elon and Pete Bannon were also talking about how they were, this was two years ago, they were already in the middle of developing a, a next generation chip. And yeah. Elon's mentioned it would be three times, I guess, capable or better. Um, and he actually slipped, let it slip that it would be ready probably in two years or something, right? So it's almost mm -hmm. two years. Um, Three times better, like what would that be used for, you know, the next generation chip? Would it be used for, for example, getting better resolution? If they could swap out all the camera, upgrade their cameras to better resolution, would that help you think with accuracy at all? Or just like, how would, would they just I think do larger not, neural nets or yeah, what's your take? It'd be mainly bigger neural networks. That would be the main thing. There, there are, so the neural network in AP1, or sorry, in AP2, the neural networks are, they're mainly based on this backbone design that came, uh, it was originally developed by Google as part of Google-Net. Uh, it's one of the reasons that that's a very attractive architecture to go with is it's very computationally efficient. That is, for the number of, for the number of operations that you have, that your neural network does, or rather for the size of the computer that you're running, if you're running real time, you can get higher accuracy. It takes longer to train and it has certain other restrictions that, but when they were running on the, on the GPU, they needed a very efficient way of running neural networks and they did that. On FSD, um, looking at the FSD networks, they still use those inception uh, backbones. This Google Annette, uh, they called the the general architecture the inception architecture, and they're 
they're in, they're the, the original one was Google Annette, which is sometimes called Inception V1, and there's a V2, 3, 4, you know, they, they further developed it. But, but uh, Tesla had just been using the basic Inception backbone. They still use some of that, but now they can run other things that are less efficient because they've got a lot more compute power, so they don't have to be so you know, laser focused on running as efficiently as possible. So that's what, that's one of the things they get from having more power is they get more flexibility in the networks they choose. Another thing that they can do is they can run a lot of networks in shadow mode if they want, because they don't need all of the compute power all the time to drive the car. They can be testing out other ways of doing things in shadow mode in cars that are driving around without having to compromise on the performance of the vehicle itself. So they get a lot from having a faster computer in terms of flexibility. And I think that's a key thing. Now, as they get, as they narrow down the way that they want to do stuff and they, they figure out exactly how various uh, aspects of the problem ne uh, need to be done, they may go to bigger and bigger networks because the bigger a network you put on, all other things being equal, a bigger network can give you better accuracy. There's a diminishing returns kind of thing. So there's kind of this knee of the curve that you want to aim for, which is a good trade-off between, you know, the amount of data that you need, the amount of training that you have to do, the accuracy you get, the speed of your computer, and all that kind of stuff. But as there's a good chance that there that in the future there will be uh, situations where they would like to have more processing power, and so a subsequent generation of the of the FSD chip would. Uh, enable them to, you know, once again, inside the same box, get significantly more power. I'll be surprised if they only have three X improvement by the time they come out with the chip. Do you think if there is that next generation chip coming out, who knows mm -hmm. when, um, I would imagine the next year or so, but, um, would it be a drop in replacement? You think the whole module, the full self-driving computer, yeah. just same size, yeah. everything power, yep. just, just like a hard, Hardware three, I mean, it looks a little bit different yeah. from hardware two externally, but the connectors are basically exactly the same. The box is the same size. Mm -hmm. You know, you pop out the, if you, if you have a model three or a model yeah. S, you know, the, there's the cover inside the glove box pops out and it's just bolted there and it has a bunch of connectors. So you take some screws off, plug it in on the model three. It's a little more complicated because they use liquid cooling. So they actually, they have to drain the coolant out of the car when they swap it. But cool. the model S and the model X it's air cooled. And you can, you know, somebody who's got good practice can swap it out in 10 minutes or something I mean, like that. It's um, really easy. Yeah, I mean, that's great news. I, I, have, a, I have a December 2017 Model 3, um, mm -hmm. and it's got the, you know, full self-driving, right, 3, hardware mm -hmm. 3. Um, for the next generation chip, what, how do you see this rolling out? Do you think Tesla will charge an upgrade to get the computer, like my car, or do you think they'll just swap it out? It's... So it's good to have, it's good that they have a follow-on chip in the pipe, right? Uh, I think Elon commented recently that they don't need it yet. And I think, you know, when they decided to do this, you don't know exactly what the future looks like because these technologies are all developing really rapidly. Nobody knows exactly like what the perfect shape of the network is, what's the perfect amount of data to, to, to do something. And I think that the their ability to use all the processing power of the FSD chip has not grown as fast as as they feared it might. Mm -hmm. 
the thing is you could have imagined a situation where they got FSD kind of working and, you know, in Carpathia's group, they're training the neural networks and that kind of stuff. And at some point they're like, oh, we need to go bigger, bigger, bigger on the neural network. And then they could have gotten to a point where they're like, you know, we we're almost there. If only we had more power, <laughs> right? You know, if we had twice as much power, that would just put us over the curve. And so you want to have that chip in, waiting in the wings in case that's how things work out, because that's two years, three years in the future at the time they were designing this chip. So it's good to have it. But I think the the reality of what has happened is that is that the autopilot team has found that there's lots of room for improvement without making the neural networks bigger. And so they haven't, you know, they've got more than enough power to do the stuff they want to do right now. So rolling, so pushing the chip out, does, it doesn't get you anything if you can't use it. Like if they can't use all the power in the system that they have right now and they don't think they're going to use it in the next year, there's no point in in developing that, that, uh, that box or rolling it out to the fleet or anything. Because if you wait a year, you can make an even better chip, mm-hmm. right? Like every every year that you wait, the chip that you can make when you roll it out is going to be that much better. So when Elon was talking about getting a 3x speed up, the one so one thing that they don't deal with that nobody in who does a first generation uh, sort of tensor processing multiplier, nobody ever does sparsity. So sparsity is this thing where in neur- neural network is basically um, you know, you have this sort of interconnect grid. I don't know, can you see this uh, screen over here? Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. I think I have, uh, let's see, NN flowchart. So this is the flowchart that Steve Bannon showed mm-hmm. when he was talking about, this is what a neural network does, is you, you have some input. So he, uh, the input, this is a flow down chart. So the input comes at the top and it goes down. And so each one of these boxes is basically a giant matrix multiply operation. So you have an input. In this case, it would be like a camera frame, which has been normalized and whatnot. And then you do, uh, these are convolutional neural networks that they use. And so they they do these, um, uh, each, each neuron has an input field, which would be three by three or five by five pixels or something like that. And it has a set of weights where, it looks at the at for instance the red channel on uh, of and the the red green and blue channels and it has a weight that it applies to each one of those, so it applies those weight it, you know basically it takes all the red pixels and each one of the red pixels has a number that you multiply it by, and then you sum them all up and then the green pixels all have a number you multiply it by and you sum all those, and uh, and if the if the total of the weights times the the pixels that you're applying them to exceed a threshold, then the neuron outputs a value. And if it's below a certain threshold, it basically outputs a zero. That's what a ReLU is. Um, so the, uh, there's basically a very large number of these neurons that are basically applying weights to various subsets of pixels inside these images. And the output of this convolution operation would be a big stack of the outputs from probably a million neurons or something in this. So they'll have like a million neurons connected to this uh, initial image. Each neuron has its own set of weights and whatnot. And you process all this stuff and you get uh, you get a set of activations, which is like what came out of that layer of neurons. Then you do it again. You have another convolution on top of that. There, There's other operations you can do, which is pooling, where you basically do operations between neurons in, in, in a layer instead of to the outputs of the previous layer. 
this whole flow chart is just basically convolutions with ReLUs on the output of them, where each one of these is an enormous mathematical operation. It, it, it will be taking megabytes of input and doing a giant ma uh, matrix operation on it, and it will be generating megabytes of output. So the flow chart itself is very simple. Like if, if you look at if you look at a flow chart for a graphics program or any kind of modern program, the flow charts would be way more complicated than this because these are individual instructions. Each one of these blocks is one instruction for the neural processing engine. It has a pointer to a giant input array. It has a pointer to a set of weights and has a pointer to where it puts its output. And it just cranks on this huge amount of number crunching and then squirts out this kind of crystallized block of, of updates from the previous layer. You work your way through these layers one at a time. And when you get to the end, kind of magically, you have you know a box that shows you where all the cars are in the picture or whatever the deal is. And the magic of neural networks is that, is that uh, using a technique called backpropagation, you can figure out what's the, what's the combination of weights for all these neurons that gives me the output I want from the input that I have. So, uh, what the and then and the neural processing unit uh, in uh, in the FSD chip does is it does these blocks, and and it does them really efficiently. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to want to pause here for a second because I think this mm -hmm. is like um, some of the crux of how FSD or neural nets work. So <clears throat> you've got this, you know, the input. So the input is basically the the frame or the video or, um, right. the image is coming through the neural a networks. single frame from a video yeah. okay and it's getting through into the I guess the first layer um, of neurons or nodes and then um, it's analyzing like different set of pixels right I guess this, are they just groups of pixels you think like three or three by three or five by five pixels so in, in the in, in, the in a convolutional network. Each, each neuron in the, in the input layer has what's called an input field, which is for these kinds of, of uh, images, it'll be a square input field. It'll be three by three or five by five. So for instance, if you have, you've got your big rectangular image, right? And you take, you know, a three by three square of pixels in the upper left corner and you have a set of weights. So three by three is nine, right? And then you've got three channels red, green, and blue, if they're RGB. Actually, so Tesla uses YUV, uh, color space, but they still have three layers. Mm -hmm. So they have, so that neuron, uh, that neuron's output, it looks at the red, green, and blue channels for each of those three by three pixels. So it's got 27 numbers coming in. And for each one of those 27 numbers, it has a weight that it has learned, that it has been trained through this training process. So it, it, it multiplies those together and it sums all the outputs out. So each pixel gets a multiply and an add because you, you're you accumulating the, the results of all those. Then the neuron has a threshold. If, the, if you multiply all those weights by those pixel values and you sum them all together, there's some, there, you have some, you'll have some threshold, say it's zero. Say if the, say if the sum of all those, because the values can be positive or negative. If the sum of all those is less than zero, then that neuron outputs a zero. And if the sum of them is is more than zero, then you put out a number which is more than zero. This is what a ReLU does. The, a ReLU is the nonlinearity that gets applied to the output of. Uh, it, if you don't have a nonlinearity, a neural network is just a linear. It's a simple linear operation, 
and the and having multiple layers doesn't have any advantage. You have to put a nonlinearity in so that a neural network can learn complex functions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a little okay, so so going so taking a step back, so mm-hmm. you know, it's these this image is going through, you know, the first layer. Um, and you've got all these neurons, I guess, activating, analyzing different portions of the image. Do they right. overlap as well? They do. They do. So yeah. that first, so I described like one neuron that you yeah. have to, that's looking at a three by three field. So in a convolutional neural network, you take that neuron, you've got an identical neuron next to it that looks at, you know, so you've got pixels zero, one, two by zero, one, two in the array. So the next time you apply it, you play it to one, two, three by zero, one, two, so that you're still on the first three rows of the image, but you move over one pixel, right? And you've got another identical neuron with the same weights. Because the thing is, for the most part, features in an image mean the same thing, even if they're slightly moved, right? So a car, if I, a car is a car in an image, if I move a little to the left and a little down, it's still a car. Right. So the set of operations you want to do is kind of it's independent of position. A car could be anywhere in the frame. And so you you're we're taking essentially the same set operations. Now, we don't just have one neuron. Um, what that what that one neuron does is it extracts one feature. It's looking for one particular thing, a particular neuron. So a particular neuron, it might be, say, looking for a diagonal line, which is light on one side and dark on another. And so in that case, you have a set of weights that gives you a, that where that neuron activates, if it sees a diagonal line or one, you might have one for curve or one for, you know, where it's red and not green or where it's lighter and darker. So you got to, so that first three by three uh, group of pixels up in the corner, it doesn't get one neuron applied to it. It gets a whole bunch. Got it. So you might have 128 different features that you're looking at and you look for those 128 features on every three by three grid in the entire input. Mm-hmm. So at the lowest level, the features are very simple things like shades and edges and that kind of stuff. So after that first layer of neurons, you have a set of features that you at this at this really low. Level. So now you put another layer of neurons on top of it. And so it that layer has like for instance maybe you have a feature for diagonal lines this way and another neuron that detects diagonal lines that way so in the next layer you can look for crossed lines right because it can say oh it can look at the neuron that looks for these diagonals and the neuron that looks for these diagonals and as you work your way up the stack the neurons look for more and more complicated things so eventually at the at the high end you might have neurons like oh this is a person's face this is a cat you know, this is a headlight and that sort of thing is you get to more and more abstract layers as you go as you go up. And eventually, when you get to the top, you have neurons, which is this is a car. <laughs> this it. is a truck. Uh, this is a stop sign and so on. Right. So with the the um, neurons further down, um, I guess, toward the end, would they be analyzing larger groups of pixels pixels in order to get like this is a face? Yeah. This is a car. So the, as we mentioned before, the, the convolutional uh, neurons, you know, they, they, they have an input field, which is wider than one pixel. It's one neuron, but it's looking a little to the left and a little to the right. So each time you go up a layer, the, the input field basically expands. So, so a given neuron in the first layer, it can only be affected by things that are 
three pixel that are a pixel to the left, a pixel to the right, or right underneath it. But if you go up another layer and you have another three by three, now that one can be looking across uh, nine pixels by nine pixels, right? Because it's got the input from a group of three pixel from a three by three grid of neurons, which each has a three by three grid as an input, right? You go up to the next layer and its input field is even larger because it's a grid of three by three of the previous layer and so on. Once you get about halfway up the stack of the neural network, you start getting neurons which can have a value that can reflect something that could occur anywhere in their input field. Right. And when, and of course, when you get to the very top of the, of the neural network, you've had multiple layers of neurons that are mixing and matching things about the image that could have occurred anywhere inside the image, like grass or trees or whatever the, the, that thing is. So you might, you know, if you've got your tree neuron and you have your grass neuron and you have your sky neuron, you might decide it's a certain kind of landscape. And so that you could have a neuron above that that says this is a certain kind of landscape. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a desert. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. the desert neuron doesn't fire if you have grass. So. Yeah. Okay. So to, to summarize this, so you've got, you know, the image coming in, um, the first layer of neurons is basically looking for pretty simple stuff, shades, like, you know, edges, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, a line or something. And then it outputs, um, uh, value greater than zero if there is some type of resemblance of what they're looking for. If it finds the feature that it's looking for. Okay, exactly. In, within its space. Yeah. 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 And so a weight greater than zero means there's some, some confidence, like the higher the weight is closer to one, it'd be much more confident, right? You could think of it that way. Okay. And then the next layer of near of neurons basically looks at a bigger space They're I mean, they're looking at the previous layer, but, but more they're able to do, um, and then they're looking for more complex things, not just, you know, one line, but maybe two lines or, you know, maybe like a, a triangle shape or something, you know. And then this continues to go on with each layer, adding more complexity, looking for more complex things until, you know, the, the end layer of neurons is able to pick up the car, the cat, whatever, very, you know, confidently based upon all of the the previous neurons work and, and their, wait, their weightings, mm -hmm. right? And then... I mean, the next step then is the training, which, which is you back, I guess you back, back propagate it. I mean, in the sense that um, you have the result and if it's correct, then it's like, okay, you know, that gave you the right result. But if it wasn't correct, if, you know, that cat wasn't a cat, it was a dog or, or something, then you could tell the, the neural network um, their mistake that the output was 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 something mm -hmm. different, and they can go back and correct all the weights. I guess to, to, yeah. To so backpropagation. Um, these uh, so one of the restrictions of neural networks is they have to be differentiable, which is means that you don't have discontinuous uh, functions anywhere inside it. Everything you can uh, everything is a smooth transition. So every every value that a neural network. Uh, makes a transition between it moves it slowly transitions through all the values in between and that lets you do this very important trick which is if you get to the output and you know that you wanted a particular output and the and what you see from the neural network is is not that output it's a little bit different if the if the if all of the layers are differentiable you can do a thing where back propagation it calculates exactly how much every single weight contributed to the error 
that to the output. So for instance, say that, that, uh, you know, I have a dog you know, we talked about the dog and cat pictures before, and it, it told me cat when it was a dog. So I can back back propagation lets me look at every single weight in the neural network and see what, what direction, how much would, would that weight have to change in order for the output to become dog instead of cat, you know, if it gave me the wrong value. And then what you don't actually flip all the values all the way there, mm -hmm. because we want the thing to learn to generalize across lots of images. So what we do is you look at, you know, if I went this far, it would flip the image output from dog to cat. So let, I'm gonna go one one thousandth of that distance. I'm just gonna nudge them all slightly in the direction of dog from cat if it was wrong. And if it was cat, and it should have been 100% cat, but it only told me 70% cat, I'll nudge it even more in the direction of cat. So the amazing thing about backpropagation is if you, if assuming that the neural network has a reasonable structure and is capable of learning this, you show it a thousand pictures of dogs and cats and it learns to generalize the difference between dogs and cats. And while in that earlier description, I was talking about, for instance, the first layer would be edges and the second layer might be crosses and the third one might be circles and so, and so on. As a human, we don't actually have to figure that out. If you have a neural network and it's got enough layers to solve the problem, and we figure out if it's got enough by building a small one and trying it, and if it doesn't work, we make it a little bigger, right? Until you find a network that works. We make them bigger, we make them wider, we add more neurons, more different kinds of kernels and features, and you just expand it until it can do the job that you want it to do. And when you do this back propagation process, the neural network itself, it decides where to put the circle neuron and where to put the cat neuron and at what level to put the edges. And every single detail of every single neuron in the thing, it just figures out on its own. We don't have to design anything aside from, we have to make sure the network is big enough that it can do the problem. And if it's big enough that it can do the problem and I give it a reasonable amount of data to learn the thing, it'll learn to, to give you the answer that you want. I mean, but we need to just, we need to create the neuron, right? The actual, what it's looking for in that image. Is that correct? So nothing is handmade in this. The, okay. it's the, the one today, the shapes of the networks, for instance, how many neurons, when we were talking about you, you know, you, you have the first layer at the bottom that the image comes into and you know, I have to decide, do I want my input field for my neurons to be three by three or five by five or four by four? How big do I want it to be? So that's an input that you decide on. And another one is, well, how many do I want in that thing? Do I want 32 features in that first layer? Do I want to look for 16? I'm using binary numbers because this is the conventional thing. Um, so, you know, you might have four features, you might have eight, 16, 32, something like that. And when you look at these networks, typically you'll see they're rounded off to the nearest binary number because those are computationally efficient. It, it's almost never gonna be the case that in the best of all possible worlds, it would be exactly 64. But you know, for most of the neural networks are, you get about the same performance at 64 as you get at 65 and 66, right? But if you go to 128, that makes a big difference. So, you know, so, uh, so the kind of rule of thumb is you just go in these binary increments. So maybe I have 32 features and that's another parameter that basically describes the shape of my network. Then what's, what's in the second layer? Um, frequently you want to narrow the, the field. So, you know, if your, if your input image is a thousand by a thousand pixels, after you do a certain amount of consolidation and processing, you can reduce it to 500 by 500 pixels as you work your way up. So typically you add, you have more and more features you look for, but you, 
you narrow down the input field as you work your way up to the top also, because it's easier to process. It's more computationally efficient. And it, it turns out if you stay a thousand by a thousand all the way up the network, you don't necessarily get better performance than if you go from a thousand to 500 to 250 and so on. And this latter case is runs a lot faster. It's good enough and it takes a lot less computation. So that's the way they tend to get built. Okay. Um, so a human being basically decides you know, what's the input field? How many features do I want? And then how many layers do I want to stack? That's what the human input. After that, the human decides um, what what output do I want? And, and you have to decide how you're going to phrase that. For instance, the way we the way that it specifies, say, if I want to build a neural network that tells me, oh, there's a car in the pic in this image and here's where it is. Well, how do I do the where it is thing? And uh, the convention is we put a bounding box around it. We ask the neural network to say, it's it's in this square. Mm -hmm. And the way that we do that is we have it tell us this is the top left corner and this is the bottom right corner. So we can draw a box if we know what those two things are. So the neurons at the top of the the output, you, I basically have these images, which are ba which uh, where each one of them is either the top left or the top or the bottom right corner of an object or nothing. Right. And if it's a top left or, or that, what that lets me do is I get an output where I can, I can figure out what the bounding boxes are for every single object inside that. So that's a bounding box output. And, and, you know, Tesla's neural networks, they generate bounding box outputs. Actually, they do a slightly better thing where they, they generate cuboid outputs now where if you have a, I don't know if you've seen the, the pictures of the, in the FSD displays and whatnot, you'll see like a three-dimensional track and it'll have like a cube, uh, not just a 2D box, but a cube drawn around it. So they'll actually have a layer that guesses the, you know, the two opposite cuboid corners, and then they can draw that box in three dimensions around the object, which basically says, here's this object, it's at this location in space relative to the car. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, so when, you know, the image is going through all of these layers of the neural net, like, let's say from start to finish, let's say just one image, right? Um, do we, first off, do you know what resolution is it? Is it like, you know, HD quality? Yeah, so the, the input images are, they take a 1280 by 960 input image, okay. and uh, they flip it into a YUV color space, and they down res the U and V layer. So they, the, mm. the illumination layer stays 1280 by 960, and the other two layers go to 640 by 480. Mm. So they do the initial pass that they do on the intensity layer, mm. or the illumination, illuminance, I guess it's called, the Y layer. Um, this one really is looking for edges, and they're easier to see in illuminance, and that has a, that has a strong effect. But it turns out, in retrospect, that the U and V layers, they're not nearly as sensitive to illumination. And that first layer going in, because it's the biggest one, you you down, you got a lower and lower uh, neuron widths and heights for the images as you go up. So that first layer is really expensive. So Tesla, they absolutely minimize the size of that layer by doing illuminance at the full 12, uh, 1280 by 960, and then they do the U and V layers at 640 by 480. They'll and they'll stack those two. Then they they'll they downsize the luminance, and then they blend the two. Right. Okay. So then the output above that is 640 by 480. And as they work their way up, it'll go from 640 by 480 to 320 by 240 to um, you know 160 by 120. You know it's it they'll they will very quickly narrow the the input field as they work their way up. Then they'll do a lot of processing at maybe 
you know, they'll come all the way down to like 40 by 30 or something like that. Oh, then wow. when they want to create the bounding box layer, they go wide again. And so the bounding box layer will be like 320 by 240 kind of scale. Mm -hmm. And it'll have a sort of reduced resolution set of bounding boxes that it produces for all the objects that come out. Okay. So from start to finish, just one frame, how many, like, what's the competition, like, processes? What the number of, you know, computation is, like, just to give a random, do you have any, you know, idea? Yeah, let me, yeah. Uh... Yeah, I, I like I have a really precise number, <laughs> but let's see if I have. I don't know if I have. A... Okay, so I mean the the first version of FSD that I got to look at has uh, like a hundred neural networks in it. They vary a lot in size, but um, so the biggest one takes twenty milliseconds to process. Twenty-seven. I think is right. And then a lot of them process an input to an output in like two milliseconds. And the different networks are, they're looking, they're extracting different kinds of features. So that's, that's you know, the biggest networks are around 5,000 instructions, a bit less than that. And the smallest ones might be 10 or something like that. Okay. So in terms of, for example, like, you know, Tesla gave their, I think what, their FSD, Three hardware three does 144, you know, tops or trillion operations per second. Like, mm -hmm. what what percent do you think is required to run FSC right now for Tesla in terms of operations per second? Is like yeah, are they it, using like oh, just a they small use 100 percent of the computation? Really? In oh. the now, uh, so I mentioned this initially I looked at this and I'm like, wow, they're using the whole thing. And then a, a, an acquaintance, I think it was actually very green pointed this out to me. It's like, you know, why would you leave anything on the table? Right. Like say for instance, that you only need half, right. You just, is you, instead of letting the other half go to waste, you run something in shadow mode or you put a bigger network in cause you can or whatever, like, you know, it's going to, it's got that processing capability. You might as well use it for something. There's almost always some useful thing you can do with it. So you just keep loading stuff into it to, to, to use what, whatever thing is. I think the analogy he used is that like in modern computers, there's never free, there's never free DRAM. Like you look at the operating system because free DRAM is just being wasted. You can always put some, you can always buffer something or use it as a cache. I mean, it's got some kind of value to some, to, to some kind of process. So, you know, if you, you look at the memory usage on your uh, on your laptop, it almost always says 100% is being used. And you're like, God, I'm only running a web browser. Why is it using 100% of the memory? It's like, well, you know, it's just caching stuff or it's got a file buffer or something, right? And so the, you know, that's essentially what the FSD machine is is uh, doing right now is that, you know, Tesla, they, they've got it. They use 100% of it because they've got all these little things they could do on the side that have some value. Mm -hmm. Wow, awesome. Um so um, what I wanted to hear is, um, I think this was a cool just introduction into kind of the beginnings of Tesla's mm -hmm. full self-driving, but also or their hardware, but also kind of how the neural nets work and, you know, why it needs kind of hardware that is really um, uh, optimized and can, can handle all this, all this, you know, power. And so what I want to do is I want to cut uh, this video right here for part one of the FSD hardware and then part two will go into I know you prepared kind of um, a breakdown of 
Um, can you explain kind of what you prepared? I know you prepared some uh, a look into competition talk as a well, little right? About, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm just going to do a comparison between like an NVIDIA GPU. So yeah. NVIDIA has a platform drive AGX that they're, it's kind of like the development platform that they have available for developing self-driving stuff. And I was going to walk through that and sort of compare and contrast the truth. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) this topic is so crazy, uh, fascinating to me. Um, So yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll do part two with that. And I'm sure I'll have a lot of questions and you'll have some cool stuff stuff to say about it. So we'll go ahead and and end part one here and then we'll see um, everyone else um, who's watching. Hopefully you'll stay for part two in the next video. All right, thanks.